Bible, uh, you can turn to Mark. If it is your first time, we, uh, we use the English Standard Version, better, better known as the ESV. Um, and if you have a different version, it's okay. We're not gonna, we don't have people kind of searching the rows to make sure you got the right version during the uh, sermon, so you're, you're good with that. But go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark, which is right after Matthew. I'm not a historical theologian. You guys should have figured that out by now um, after a few years of hearing me preach, but we still need to understand the setting of, of, what, uh, of what Mark grounds his gospel in. Uh, the New Testament, it opens with four books, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we refer to these books as the gospels, or another word for gospel is good news, because what they are is they are written accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. So the gospel according to Mark, which is what we're going to be going through over the next eight months, it was written around A.D. 65, that's what tradition tells us, and it's thought to be actually the first gospel written concerning the life of of Jesus. And of course, it was authored by Mark, or better known as John Mark, who uh, at one point was a ministry companion to the Apostle Paul and to uh, Barnabas. They had a disagreement at some point, uh, and they actually parted ways. John Mark parted ways uh, with the Apostle Paul and went with Barnabas, which of course leads us to understand that, believe it or not, church leaders, they have disagreements, and God uses their disagreements to lead them in ways and to increase ministry in other places. That's what happened to uh, John, Mark, and Paul. They later reconciled. Many of the old church fathers actually believe that Mark's gospel came from the Apostle Peter, uh, who actually directed Mark to write this particular account. And we know that if we read uh, the, uh, the epistles, the letters of Peter, that Mark actually served as a secretary to Peter. So that's a little background in terms of time and authorship. The audience Mark was writing to were Christians. Specifically, he was writing to Christians who were suffering under persecution in Rome, which was led at the time by just this maniacal king that you may have heard of. If you do some history, a guy named Nero, who just, this guy just mercilessly killed Christians, and he did it as a way to cast blame on them because at this time, uh, Rome had burned to the ground. And so Nero went after Christians and said, it was you. You guys are the ones that plotted and did this. And one of the ways he kind of got back at the Christian community was he started persecuting them. So to get a sort of a panoramic or a wide view of, of the setting, what you want to do is imagine, you want to imagine Christians scattered throughout the city of Rome, hiding in all kinds of different places, hiding underneath the city, in the catacombs, um, hiding in other concealed areas, just in constant danger of being martyred, and then, and then thinking of them receiving this newly written account uh, of Jesus' life uh, as a way to be encouraged in their faith, as they feared for their lives because of their faith. And so even as we go through Mark, we want to remember this, we want to let this create a sense of uh, just realness for us, right? A sense of urgency as we read this book, instead of just thinking about this as just some ancient, dusty, you know, document, right? The way that, you know, even on your own computer, right, you file away things that you think, I'm going to use this down the road, you never do, and it ends up just staying there forever until you throw away your computer. You never give it a second thought. We don't want this to be that. We want to sort of sense the realness and uh, the urgency of this. Now, one of the things you'll notice as we get into Mark, as we go through it even today, is that it just moves at a rapid pace, right? Mark doesn't waste any time. This is not a uh, you know, this is not the war and peace of the four Gospels, all right? This is not like 20 seasons on Netflix, right, that you got to get through. Mark just gets right 
to it. Uh, it's more like a summary account of the life of Jesus or, you know, kind of like a Cliff Notes version of it. Uh, you know, it doesn't start with the big, long genealogy that we see uh, in, 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 like, Matthew, uh, nor does it go into all kinds of crazy details surrounding Christ's birth like we see uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Mark gets right into the heart of the ministry of Jesus. And the theme, as we get into this, as we're going to see as we dive in, the theme of Mark, it's pretty clear, right? And it's to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, which Mark affirms, as you'll see as we dive right into the very first verse. You know how some people, you know how some people buy, maybe you're one of these people, some people buy a new book and, and they read the last chapter first? Like, you, you know those people? Maybe you're, one of the, maybe you're one of those people. I struggle with you. I'm just going to lay it out there right now. Um, but here's the thing. You don't have to do that here, right? Mark starts with the plot of the story right from the beginning by saying it's all about Jesus, who is the good news, which is why it's called the gospel message, okay? And that's what kind of sets us up as we dive into Mark. Now, given, given this truth, um, man, I, just, I, I named the series Walking with Jesus, and that's because when you look at the heart of the ministry of Jesus, it was all about making disciples. And this word disciples is a word that refers to men and women and children who become authentic, devoted followers of Jesus. Men, women, and children who become authentic and devoted followers of Jesus. Now, I didn't say fans of Jesus, okay? Because Jesus, we're going to see, had plenty of fans. So did, so did John the Baptist, as we're going to see this morning. But Jesus had plenty of fans, which were, again, man, these were dudes that just, you know, wore the jersey, that said Team Jesus, right? Posted scripture verses all over the house, right? Um, attended all the speaking gigs that, that Jesus did. Never missed a Sunday that Jesus was speaking at the synagogue, right? The problem with being a fan of Jesus is that the minute he says something you don't like, you bow out. And then you become fanboys and fangirls of someone, someone else. Followers of Jesus on the other hand, are people whose hearts have been changed by Jesus, which results in an affectionate pursuit of Jesus that leads to doing all the things Jesus called us to do. And this is how we define walking with Jesus. Again, not because we're being pulled by a leash, uh, not because we think he's going to be mad if we ever trip and fall behind him. Um, the reason why we can walk with Jesus is because Jesus walked out of a tomb, okay? So walking with Jesus is living out the life we have that Jesus died to give us. We just sang it like one second ago. Upon a life I did not live. Because a tomb is not our future anymore. So my hope and my prayer is that we will get to know Jesus more deeply as we go through the gospel of Mark, that we will learn to love him more dearly and live for him more fully as we just walk with him so to speak, through this gospel. Now, something I'm going to do that we haven't done in the past every week, I'm going to invite Kyle Gordon up this week. We're going to have somebody, one of you, read us our passage for the week every week. So Kyle's going to kick it off and read to us from Mark 1, 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, brother. Kyle Gordon. So here's our main point that we're going to be diving into as we get into the beginning of Mark today, and it's simply this, that God executes his redemptive work by introducing the world to his son, and that continues for us today. And right in the beginning here, as we get right into verse 1, Mark does this thing. You know, back in the day, remember when we used to have maps in our cars? And by maps, I don't mean this. By maps, I mean like those crinkly things that you used to have to go and try to unravel. Well, this is kind of what Mark is, un- is doing for us right here. He's unraveling the roadmap for where he's taking us when he says, in the beginning of the, the, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, in Genesis, we remember it says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So it kind of evokes that for us when we see the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, if we go back to Genesis, in the beginning spoke of God's original creation. And now Mark is telling us about the beginning of God's plan for his new creation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Mark 8, Jesus actually had a a convo with his disciples uh, where he said to them, Who do you say that I am? Right? Because there's, there was some, you know, the jury was out on who this, this Jesus character was. And Peter replies, he makes this remarkable statement, and he says, you are the Christ. And so what Mark does here is he takes us into the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he gets us into uh, who was being set up as the messenger to go ahead of Jesus Christ to prepare everybody. What he affirms, what he reminds his readers of, is that this is not about some guy named Jesus, just some random dude named Jesus who just got real famous, all right? And who end up rolling with an entourage and, you know, did a bunch of, like, magic tricks, right? So that we should, like, pay attention to this colorful character that lived 2,000 years ago. No, what Mark is telling us is that this is the life of Jesus Christ, he says right here, who is the Son of God. And we'll see Mark authenticating his claim as we move along. And the reason for this is that Mark's intent is for his readers right from the beginning, from the very first word of chapter 1 and verse 1, his intent is for his readers to understand that Jesus is the culmination of something. He's the culmination of God's redemptive plan that was announced all the way back in the Garden of Eden thousands of years earlier. And you know what it's kind of like, if you want to think of it like this, it's like when an architect, you know, uh, draws up blueprints and crafts them, right, gets them into shape, keeps editing them until the moment he breaks ground and the building process begins. So Mark is saying basically to us right here, God broke ground 
as he sent this messenger who we know to be John the Baptist. In fact, he quotes three Old Testament passages here from Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah in verses 2 to 3, right? When he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So what we see is that God sets up a pattern here that we see all through Scripture, which is that he sends his people to proclaim to people that he is on the move. And so when we get into understanding who this guy John the Baptist was, as Mark uh, gives us information about him, was that this was a guy that was the forerunner for Jesus. So the person that God sent was this guy to set up the people to prepare them for his coming. So here's the situation with John as we get into verse 4, and you understand a little bit about his appearing and what his message was and what he was doing. It had been hundreds of years at this point since there had been a prophet in Israel. That's what we know about when John kind of comes onto the scene. And by prophets, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about dudes like Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah who were spokesmen of God to the people of God. So uh, God raises up this dude, John, from the wilderness, very specifically, who comes on the scene just like all the old school prophets, okay, and prepares the people for Jesus by having a very exclusive, interesting message, which is repent. He calls for repentance, right? He's not a complicated guy, doesn't have a lot to say, but he calls the people to repentance. So in this way, John was forerunning Jesus by proclaiming the same message that Jesus was going to be proclaiming, which we'll see next week. And he's kind of an important guy, too, because Jesus actually says in Matthew, if you go to Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So this was a, this was a significant messenger, right, for us to see and to understand and to know who was ushering in the new age with Jesus coming down uh, as, as the incarnated God. What's interesting about baptism, right, because what we see here, if you go back to verse 5, is that he was go- going all over Judea. He was going all over Jerusalem. And uh, people are being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. So here's the significance of baptism in this particular time, was that in Israel, baptism was not for Israelites. In Israel, baptism was for Gentiles or non-believers who were converting to the Jewish faith. So uh, a, a baptism like the one John was doing here for the forgiveness of sins, man, you know what? It was going to ruffle some feathers, and it was, gonna, it was going to uh, really offend and upset the religious right at the time, which would have been the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because what happened was, by calling people to confession of sins and being baptized, it put them in a category with sinners instead of simply doing what the Pharisees and Sadducees called the people to do, which was just work a little bit harder to keep the Jewish law. So what, what, John, doing here, what John is doing here is just is, is kind of nuts, right? It's kind of crazy. And what God did through John was just prepare people's hearts for the good news of salvation through faith. He's prepping the people through John. And what we want to notice here. What we want to notice here, especially given our culture and maybe some of the church cultures that you've grown up in using particular language that sounds right, seems right, but doesn't really find its root in here. I mean, we want to, we want to notice right here that, uh, that John's message wasn't, you know, guys, uh, come forward and accept Jesus in your heart. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't say that. It's, it's actually 
way more severe than that. It's way more complicated than that. That's why when pastors preach anything other than repentance of sin to become justified before God, they're not really preaching the gospel. Now, let me qual here for a second. Just because you've had a pastor that says you need to accept Jesus in your heart doesn't mean he wasn't preaching the gospel. That's not what I'm saying. But the emphasis is a little off track, right? The emphasis is a little off track. And the reason why we know the emphasis is a little off track is because what we see here by the preacher that was the forerunner of Jesus was his message was confession of sins. It was repent and believe. So sometimes what happens is we end up getting sort of a false roadmap to salvation, right? Last week, my wife and I went to, no, she's going to love me reliving this story. So we got this cabin for a couple of days, right? And uh, so the people that we got the cabin from, you know, they sent us a little Google map, you know, via email, and uh, they sent us to, the, to the, wrong, the wrong cabin. And so not only did they send us a, 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 you know, a little Google map, but they sent us a little code to punch in for how to get in the door. And, um, but but the, here's the problem, and I, you know, again, I'm not pretending like you guys aren't intelligent, but, but the code didn't work because it was the wrong cabin, right? You know, so here we are, uh, you know, we're, we're just standing out there, and I'm, like, I'm punching in the code like 200 times, and like it's freezing out, and it's getting dark, and you know, people are driving by saying, that's funny, they, these people, they just have all their stuff all laying all over the snow, and they just keep like banging on the door like that, is that what they like to do for fun? Like, I don't know, and we're like, no, we can't get in because the code doesn't work. Well, the code didn't work because it was the wrong door, right? If you try to get right with God through anything other than repentance and faith and Jesus, it's like punching in the wrong code. Do you guys follow me on that? So Mark wants his readers to be clear on what the message of John the Baptist was because it was just the message that Jesus, the Son of God, was about to bring and emphasize even more deeply than John did. So Mark wants his readers to be clear on the message and, and then the mission of John, right? I mean, again, as we, as we kind of get in and start to understand this dude, John, I mean, this was, I mean, this was not a guy who read how to win friends and influence people, right? I mean, that's not, this was a dude who literally had one job. Like, like, John, you have one job, right? And look at the way Mark describes John when you go into verse 6, right? Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached. And I'll let you read the rest of it. So you look at verse 6, you're like, what the heck? Like, Mark, what, what is that all about? I mean, do we really need commentary on first century fashion from the closet of John the Baptist? I mean, is that, is that why he's telling us these things? Well, the, the reason, I mean, the answer is no. It wasn't just fashion commentary. The reason was to point out that John was a prophet in the same vein of all the old rugged desert-dwelling prophets from the past. And like the old prophets, John was a preacher preaching a message that was not his own, pointing to a person more important than himself. And one of the things that we have to realize as we're trying to understand John here as the forerunner to Jesus is that this dude had become massively popular, right? He'd become a popular guy. People were flocking to him to be baptized and to hear his message of repentance, which kind of goes against when you think about messages now that are given uh, to the church that don't talk about repentance, that don't really talk about anything but how to be comfortable and how to live your best life now. And people flock to those churches as well. But you know what? Repentance and faith in Christ, which is the true meat and potatoes of God's word, people who God 
hearts are changing flock to that message too, right? And that's the message that actually changed hearts, that builds the true church of Christ. Amen? Yeah, man. Amen. You got to amen me on that one right there because it's starting to get real right now, right? So John has become just a massively popular guy. But here's what's interesting about our boy John is that he wasn't trying to build a platform, right? I mean, this was not a dude that was trying to gain Facebook friends and thousands of Twitter followers. He's not, he's not doing that, right? Which, by the way, is the job of all gospel preachers, just so you know. John was saying, it's not about me. He's saying, it's about the one coming after me that I'm here to prepare you for. And then, oddly enough, John uses a footwear illustration in verse 7 for them to understand, keeping it right along the, the fashion tip there. Now, when he talks about sandals, right, back in that day, everybody wore sandals. That was kind of what you wore. You know, I like wearing some chucks, and I like my Adidas. Well, they just didn't have chucks and Adidas back then. The, the equivalent were, were sandals. Maybe they, had, maybe they had Chuck Taylor sandals. Like, I wasn't back then. I don't know. I'm not going to make any guesses on that. But everybody wore sandals, so if you were someone who was of kind of a higher social status, it would have been demeaning for you as somebody who probably had nicer sandals, but sandals were still dirty and filthy because that's what you walked in. It would have been demeaning for you to reach down and untie your own dirty sandals, especially if you're somebody of a higher social status. Um, so here's what's interesting. Um, you would have normally had a, had a servant to do it. So when you walked in the door, your feet were dirty, a servant would untie your sandals and then wash your feet. Now here, here's what's interesting about, about what John is saying. John says to the people, uh, just to give you a picture of the difference between me and Jesus, I need you guys to know that I'm not even worthy enough to untie his dirty sandals. In fact, like I'm not even up to the level of a servant which would have the ability to untie the sandals of his masters. He's saying, look, you guys, don't lift me up. He's saying, don't hype me. He's saying, don't misidentify me. What John was doing is he was pointing out his humanness to the people uh, despite his efforts to, to the contrary. Um, because, again, like we said earlier, he, he had gained a huge following. He gained a ton, of, a ton of views on YouTube, right, just to keep it, you know, contextual for our times. But John knew that it wasn't about him, which, in fact, is why he famously said in John 3, uh, he must increase, but I must decrease. John humbly points out that, again, if you go back uh, to verse uh, 6 and 7, that he could only baptize with water. I baptized with water. And water was an outward sign, but he said Jesus was coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So he's sort of contrasting who he was as the forerunner of Jesus with the one that was coming. And he said Jesus is coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit, which of course would be an inward dwelling and a seal for all who repented and believed. And it's that inward dwelling and seal that tells us and assures us that we belong exclusively to Jesus. Uh, Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, he said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, were sealed, he says, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So John is trying to point out, man, God sent me with a specific, uh, with a, a specific message on a specific mission, but it was all just to set up the one that was coming who can actually change your heart, change your soul, and call you to the thing that is going to give you life. So the message and mission of John was simply this, 
Confess your sins because Jesus is on the move. That was the message of John as a forerunner to Jesus. So as we get to verse 9, Mark immediately introduces Jesus into the narrative, right? He just, it's like, bam, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. You know, Mark's like, I don't got time, I need to get to Jesus ASAP. And, uh, you know, you notice he, he skips over the genealogy, he skips over the birth, and he brings us straight to Jesus' unique baptism with John. Now, Jesus being baptized, by the way, did not vibe well with our boy, John the Baptist, okay? Um, and the reason why it didn't vibe well was because, number one, John knew Jesus was the Son of God, which meant, number two, he had no need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins because he was sinless, Right? In fact, in Matthew 3, John argues with Jesus saying, dude, I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you. He didn't say dude. In fact, John may have also looked around uh, at the people that were surrounding Jesus at his baptism and thought, well, what will these people think when they see this person I've been saying is the Messiah getting baptized, right? Because baptism meant something. It meant that you had confessed your sins, that you were aligning yourself with the truth of Jesus Christ being the Messiah. So that leads us to the question, why was Jesus baptized? Well, Jesus tells John, actually, in Matthew chapter 3, when he said, it needs to happen. He says, let it be so, John, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus, what this means is Jesus being both fully God and fully man, he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the Jewish law so that he could be the perfect substitute for us on the cross. He had to do that. And this was affirmed by God, actually. When he came out of the water in verse 10, we get this very clear picture of the Trinity. Three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we see the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. And the voice of God giving his approval by saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And we get some context for this in Isaiah 42, which is a prophecy saying, behold my servant who I, whom I uphold. This is God talking about Jesus. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So we get insight in what the mission of Jesus was, which was to justify sinners. That's where we get this phrase, justification by faith alone. Maybe you've heard that. Hopefully you've heard it here many times. But justification by faith alone. Jesus coming to justify sinners. So what Jesus represented to us in this moment was the only way for us to please God. This is the gospel right here, which is repentance of sins, whereby the Holy Spirit descends into our hearts. And the Father looks down. And he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And he adopts us as sons and daughters who he is now well pleased. That's the place all human beings need to be in order to walk with Jesus. This is the gospel. That's the gospel. And so Mark moves us from this particular moment of preparation in the life of Jesus to show that he's not only fully man, but he's fully God, into a time of, of, of desert testing, right? Jesus was also tempted. He was also tested, just like us when you get into verse 12, and you see the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. 
And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It's interesting that the first place the Spirit, who had descended upon Jesus, brings Jesus to, before his public ministry begins, is the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now, the Bible is very clear that we have an enemy who is a fallen angel named Lucifer, who according to 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, disguises himself. He's a tricky dude. He disguises himself as an angel of light and wants nothing more, even as we see right now, as him going after Jesus to tempt and test Jesus, he wants nothing more than to obstruct the work of Jesus and maintain the power and control he has within the unrepentant world. And what we learn from this particular temptation that Mark doesn't give us a lot of, a lot of fleshing out for him, we're not going to do too much this morning uh, because of time, but what we learn from this temptation account in the other Gospels is that Jesus passed the test. And that's what we need to know, is that Jesus passed the test. And here's what it brings us back to, right? Here's where we get some really deep and beautiful uh, connection and context with the whole of Scripture, right? It's this, whereas the first Adam, remember Adam, Whereas the first Adam, remember how he was tempted? And he wasn't just tempted, but he was tempted in a lush garden paradise. Now we see the contrast here. We see Jesus here, who's also called the second Adam, being tempted in a wilderness now. It's not a lush garden anymore. It's a wilderness with wild animals, illustrating to us the fallen world now with which Jesus entered in due to the sin of the first Adam, our great-grandfather Adam. But unlike the first Adam, Jesus passes the test. He would pass the test. What Mark is doing for us here, what he's setting us up for here, is he's trying to unfold a narrative for us and for his readers originally. And it's to show that where man failed, Jesus was faithful. And and, and really, we, we can't understand or know or be reminded of that enough. Where you fail, where I fail, where man fails, where our spouses fail, where our kids fail, where our parents fail, where our friends fail us, God is always faithful. Jesus was faithful. That's hope. That's good news for us. Hebrews 4 reminds us that we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tested. He was tempted. And it says in Hebrews, but in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, but yet without sin. That's the hope. That where we fail, Jesus is faithful, and it's his righteousness that now becomes our righteousness because if we do and we confess our sins, if we repent of our sins, if we receive the call of Jesus into our lives, our fate is going to be the fate of Jesus, which is going to be risen and raised up to spend all of eternity with God in heaven. That's the big idea. That's the setup here when we look at what Mark is trying to sort of create the picture for us to understand as we launch deeper into this book. So what does this mean for us today? God having finalized and executed his redemptive blueprints. What does that mean for us? Well, I got three things. First one is this. All of God's plans come to fruition in Jesus That's what we see. That's one of the implications of these first 13 verses. Because here's the question that you and I need to wrestle with all the time. It's who can we trust? Who can we trust in this world? Because our plans, like our plans that we're hatching and trying to accomplish, I mean, dude, those are are plans like, those are like the Titanic, 
right? I mean, we think they're unsinkable. They're foolproof. But what we don't see is that we're always slowly approaching a rather large iceberg, right, that goes really deep beneath the surface, that's going to unravel our plans, that's going to defeat and crush our plans. God sending Jesus, what we see here and understand is this was a perfectly executed plan. In fact, uh, Peter speaking in the book of Acts said this when he was talking to the council. Uh, He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? Because the plans that God puts into motion don't fail. This is how we would define the word encouragement in our vocab. Do you think that there's a future in your life that is not being fully and faithfully executed by God? If God did not fail in this, if God did not fail in his plan to send his own son to be crucified and then raise him up, then how can he fail to accomplish his plan for all of those who trust in him? Well, he failed me, Ronnie. God failed me. Okay. But what I think happened is he failed to do what you wanted. What I think happened is that he failed to do what the Jewish people wanted him to do too, which is what we're going to see as our narrative in Mark unfolds. God's plan is perfect because it's his plan, not our plan. We should let that give us hope because all of God's plans come to fruition in Jesus. Two, waiting on God expands our vision of Jesus. What God has for us makes waiting on God worth it, right? And as we wait, we don't despair, but our eyes become more focused on Jesus. You know, it's kind of like when you wake up in the morning and you've been sleeping on your eye, and your eye's all cloudy and you can't see anything, and you have to adjust your vision. By the way, like everything that was there the night before is still there, right? But your eyes just haven't adjusted to see it. The people of Israel, they were waiting for hundreds and thousands of years. They were waiting on God to send his son. And leading up to that, God was constantly delivering on his promises. They just couldn't see it fully materialized yet until Christ came and until John came to prepare the way for Christ. But by learning to wait on God in our lives, we get to see the narrative that God wrote that led to Jesus and be encouraged by that, right? I mean, remember this truth when you look at your own life and everything seems blurry. God is writing a story. It's just not complete yet. But as you trust him, it becomes clearer, like it was becoming clearer to the people in Mark's gospel. How will it become clearer? Jesus will become more visible in your life. That's how you know when things are becoming more clear. 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. As God sanctifies us, after he has saved us, we begin to see more clearly what God is doing and what God has had for us all along. So all of God's plans come to fruition in Jesus. Waiting on God expands our vision of Jesus. Finally, God provides Jesus 
as the answer to all our dilemmas. That's what he was doing here. God was executing a plan that provided Jesus as the answer to every dilemma that his people had. You know what's interesting? The people wanted a political future. That's what we're going to see a little bit of. And if you read the other Gospels, that gets sussed out a little bit more. But the people wanted a political future. They wanted heaven on earth. But God sent Jesus so we'd have heaven after earth passes away. He has a little bit of a different plan. The answer to our dilemmas, to your dilemma, isn't for everything to get better in this world, but for everything to get better in our heart for the next world. That's why in the first 13 verses, it's all about a crazy dude in camel's hair shouting out, repent and believe. That's why when Jesus hit the ground, he said the same thing. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because here's the thing. We don't walk with Jesus because we're wowed by him, right? You don't walk with Jesus because you walk into church or because you walk old ladies across the streets, right? You walk with Jesus because Jesus walked to the cross and bore the punishment of God's wrath against our sin. Martin Luther said, granted our sin, how shall we be made right with God? Given our sin, how? The answer is Jesus. So, the introduction to Jesus was an introduction to repentance. That's the message. Because repentance leads to the cross of Christ, which is the journey that Jesus was on the minute he was born. And repentance for us leads to reconciliation with God. I mean, I wonder how many of us understand this. Because some of you don't understand this. Some of you have been sitting in places like this a long time, and this has not become clear to you. Let's make it clear. I mean, can we clear this up? Repentance leads to reconciliation with God. I mean, are we like the Pharisees who were offended? In Matthew 3, when John called them a brood of vipers? I mean, that's as close to cussing in the Bible as we get, right? Because they thought being related to Abraham, having Abraham as their forefather, having the DNA of Abraham in them, they thought that's what made them okay with God. That's what we call justified them. But it didn't. Or, or maybe you're someone who says, no, I get it, I'm, I'm a sinner, like, dude, I mean, just, you know, I mean, you know, I got the rear view in my life all the time. I get it. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. So what happens is you confess that right now. You say, yes, Ronnie, I'm a sinner, but you never repent, meaning your life is still characterized by a lifestyle of pleasing yourself instead of God. Because what we know about repentance is that it leads to new birth. It leads to new creation. It leads to new beginnings. I mean, can we just be honest, man? Your New Year's resolutions are already back on the shelf until 2018, and it's February 5th today. But you know what you can do? You know what I can do? We can still resolve to repent and experience the freedom and joy that comes with being justified and righteous before a holy God. We can walk with Jesus because Jesus walked out of a tomb. And repentance and faith in Jesus is the only way that we get to walk out. This can be our beginning every day, and well, it should. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your word. Thank you for inspiring John Mark to write this word, to introduce us to the good news of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, let our hearts be humbled as we think about our standing before you, as we think about the ways that we default into wanting to justify ourselves, to make ourselves right, to earn our keep with you. Lord, those are false. Those are false things, Lord, that we try to live out. Let us remember that it's only in Christ, it's only faith in Christ, by grace and faith, Lord, that we have any standing before you. Thank you that you executed the plan that you did, that you sent your son, that the message was so simple and so clear for us to understand. Lord, we pray that you would invade our hearts, invade those whose hearts have not repented to you, who have not known the freedom and the joy that comes when we repent of our sin and the weight of sin is lifted from us. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling this morning because that weight feels heavy. Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts. I pray that you would heal us. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would care deeply for those around us so that we are bold ambassadors to proclaim this repentance and faith in you, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.